0: people, um, who had been really interested in UFOs for years or decades, um, that I discovered that uh, UFO people, as I sometimes call them, are not just all, you know, conspiracy theorists kooks, there's a lot of very smart, good researchers out there who just happen to have this as their subject, and then I started to think, you know, why and what place do UFOs hold in our culture, because they're just really persistent.
1: Have you ever seen strange objects in the sky? And what exactly were those flying tic-tacs those Navy pilots encountered? Is there a government conspiracy? Are some of you, dear listeners, wondering if UFOs are real? Do you believe? In this replay edition of Into the Impossible, your curious host, Brian Keating, discusses the topic of UFOs with Sarah Scholes, science journalist and author of Making Contact, and... They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. Her uniquely objective perspective may surprise believers and skeptics. Let us know about your close encounters with Into the Impossible in an insightful review. Include your suggestions. Professor Keating reads them all. And before you delve into the latest annual report on unidentified aerial phenomenon from the Director of National Intelligence, consider honoring us with a five-star rating. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please help.
2: Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody to this episode of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imaginations Into the Impossible podcast. I am your fearful host, uh, Brian Keating. Joining me today is one of my favorite uh, authors, science journalist, Sarah Skolls. Hello, Sarah.
0: Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, it's great to have you uh, on the, Into the Impossible Podcast. Today we'll be discussing your brand new book, which is your second book, I believe, uh, and it is called they Are, they Are Already Here, about why there is this uh, frequently reported uh, description of flying saucers and, and why that may be and what that tells us about uh, the state of the world and how people perceive interesting phenomena such as unidentified flying objects. So, uh, Sarah, I have to say, your last book, Making Contact, was a, was a biography of Jill Tarter and, and the uh, realm of kind of a, a investigative journalism, so to speak, but also pursuing this uh, ambitious goal of perhaps hearing and listening to perhaps uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. And now you're writing a book, uh, you've written a book, a wonderful book, about uh, seeing flying saucers, unidentified flying objects in various locations around the world. And my next question for you is, what is next for you? Is it a book about Yeti or Loch Ness Monster? What do you have next? So?
0: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I feel like other other writers kind of have the cryptids and cryptozoology pretty well covered. Um, I'm actually, I've actually been doing some research into the history of doomsday cults lately, um, now that we're in this strange state of the world. So I don't know if that will turn into anything or not, but I have a batch of books to read about it. So we'll see what happens.
2: Oh, maybe that'll bring you down to San Diego, where we've had uh, our fair share of uh, cults—some unfortunately successful in their pursuit of their own personal doomsdays. But uh, I can't can't wait to learn more about that project for you. Uh, So I wanted to talk, begin the the book discussion of um, they are already here, and we'll have not only a uh, you know a screenshot from the book's cover and some images that you've provided us, but also we'll have a giveaway for listeners on the iTunes store to the actual audio uh, version of the podcast. Uh, We'll give away a copy once uh, the bookstores get liberated from lockdown. We are currently in COVID lockdown. I want to talk um, about the book, the process of writing the book, and of course, you know, hopefully entice our listeners, our audience to go and pick up a copy. Uh, But I want to ask first, after writing Making Contact, um, what impelled you to want to write this book? And, and sort of, uh, sort of seti adjacent in a sense. So, what um, what what impelled you to to want to write? Uh, they are already here.
0: Yeah, actually, when I finished making contact, I didn't intend to write any other books um, and definitely not any more books about uh, aliens or alien adjacent things. Um, That was kind of unexpected, but it all uh, started when there was a New York Times story that came out in late 2017 that was all about this um, Pentagon research program that supposedly had done a bunch of work trying to figure out what UFOs are. Um, or as the military likes to call them UAP, an uh, identified aerial phenomena, because it sounds more serious. Um, and I was very interested in this story as, as someone who had done a bunch of research on SETI and um, had kind of covered the the space industry for a while. And I had just started setting out trying to uh, confirm or deny all the things that were in this story about about this UFO research program. Um, and in doing that anytime um as, you know, as a scientist or a journalist, when you go out to research something, you meet a bunch of people who've been researching it for much longer than you um, and who know a lot more than you do. And it was when I met those people um, who had been really interested in UFOs for years or decades um, that I discovered that uh ufo people as i sometimes call them are not just all you know conspiracy theorists kooks there's a lot of very smart good researchers out there who just happen to have this as their subject and then i started to think you know why and what place do ufos hold in our culture because they're this really persistent phenomenon and um that's too long for one article so i had to go off and write a book
2: so uh, you are uh, very renowned uh, journalist, and in fact, we met uh, several years ago. You did a story about uh, one of the research projects I was involved with uh, to look for peculiar phenomena known as cosmic birefringence and twists and certain properties of the light that comes from the earliest times in the cosmos, and that kind of segues into you know my first set of you know questions as a professional astronomer, you know, who does observations including. Uh, some conducted with large radio telescopes such as uh, the ones behind me in my uh, screen virtual background from the very large array out in Socorro, New Mexico. Uh, we use these massive telescopes and, you know, basically any night of the year uh, for a radio telescope is almost as good as uh, a perfectly pristine, clear, crisp night uh, that you describe in the book, having um, experienced the 2017 eclipse of the sun and then encountering an unidentified flying object. I want to first, you know, kind of theme this conversation around uh, the very um, weighty and important issues that you bring up uh, in this book of, of confirmation bias and sort of, you know, uh, the, the notion that we sometimes see what we want to see. But I want to begin with a question that some of my astronomer friends want me to ask you, which is, you know, given that we have, you know, thousands of telescopes, radio, microwave, and and optical telescopes plying the skies, looking for any shred of evidence um, uh, over the last, you know, 50, 100 years, where the SETI uh, kind of, um, not, not just SETI, but, but the notion of extraterrestrials perhaps visiting this planet, um, how come we tend not to see them in, from coming from professional astronomers, in your opinion?
0: Yeah, well, I think the the first and probably easiest answer to that question is that astronomers tend to be more familiar with what they see in the sky. Um if somebody who is looking at data from a telescope all the time sees something anomalous, A, they're trained to um, you know, try, try very hard to uh, figure out what it is and not just say, that's a crazy thing and I don't understand it, but to go out and try to understand it. And then also are familiar with things like, uh, you know, you get a lot of um, people who, just casual observers who will see things like Venus, which can look very strange in the sky, and think that's a UFO, but an astronomer would think that looks like it's in the part of the sky where Venus is. Um, and uh, in terms of you know telescopes, I think that that is a good question, why we have all of this hard data um, not just from astronomical observatories, but also from space-based observatories that are doing Earth observation that could theoretically see some sign of uh, alien presence on Earth and why they, why they don't, um, as far as we know. And uh, I think um, that's a problem for the, the UFO community if we have all of these sensors, why we don't have any hard data and what we have instead are just a bunch of eyewitness reports. And I think especially physical scientists are um, rightly very skeptical of of eyewitness reports. Um, And I know know personally, I mean, I'm not a scientist, I'm a journalist, but when, um, especially prior to this book, if I saw something I didn't understand in the sky, like it wouldn't have a deep effect on me. I don't think really in the way that it does for a lot of people, I would just see it and think, that's weird. I don't understand what that is, but um, probably someone could. And I think a lot of people without scientific training, especially, um, think then that if they don't understand it, then therefore it must be not understandable, which is just a difference in a difference in thinking.
2: Yeah. So one thing that we uh, are, you know, both uh, connected to is being open to evidence, but not you know, hopefully not being you know, prejudiced by the desire to believe something, for example. And, and that's afflicted, um, you know, as I've discussed in the past and in many different uh, regimes, whether it be in science, when we want to make a big discovery for different reasons, uh, personal, professional um, uh, prestige, that, that, that sometimes influences decisions that are uh, in ways that aren't intrinsically scientific. And you go through the book and you, you talk a little bit about, you know, one of the most foremost kind of. Uh, popular culture references to the um, to the phenomena of of UFOs, and that is of course the X Files, and the theme or sort of the tagline of the of the X Files on all these posters is "I want to believe," and I, I usually get asked this question as a scientist: you know, what do I hope to see, and what do I want to come out of a given project? And it's uh, it's a very delicate question because on one hand, you can't help but you know have desire. We're only human, after all, and we're Humans doing science, even despite the uh, you know, kind of cliches to the contrary. But uh, what do you make of this desire that, for someone who's, it's hard enough for someone who is a scientist to keep his or her confirmation bias out of the um, out of the, the mixture. But how do you, uh, what do you make of it for people that are, you know, maybe prone to believing in, in conspiracies, whatever that means, and and or you know perhaps cover-ups by more powerful agencies? Um, what is it about the human brain that that really Uh, seeks to uh, observe or discern these these phenomena.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, anytime you go... Into a topic and you already know what you want to find which like like you said afflicts all of us No matter how objective we try to be that can't help but affect your thinking and um, you know The scientific process has some built-in checks and balances against that at least at least in some places Um, But if you're a person who let's say you you want to believe in ufos like uh, Mulder on the x-files then when you do see Venus on the the skyline um or or something else um and you're going in wanting to see something strange then chances are you you're more likely to interpret it as something strange because that supports this view that you already had and I think probably most of us are, are prone to that in some ways and that but then you can stop yourself and say I just think that because that's what I want to think but that's I think that's kind of a little bit against our our natural nature so it takes an extra kind of metacognitive step um and I think there's also this additional element that um, that a lot of the UFO um anthropology tattoo I talked to, talk to pointed it out which is um that you know, movies and TV and books, the, the X-Files, you know, everything um, that's about UFOs or alien heads on Earth has trained us from from the time that we started consuming media to think that when we see something weird in the sky, it must be an alien spaceship because that was what was in Independence Day and um, the X-Files and, and basically anything else. And if we didn't come into it with that interpretation, you know, we we we. Um, might think of it as something else. Like maybe if we grew up in a culture where, we were, uh, where all the movies were about weird atmospheric phenomena, we'd be like, wow, look at that weird atmospheric phenomenon. And it's just, we, go, we come into it with all these cultural biases built in that it's hard to even recognize as biases because they're, so, they're the water that we swim in.
2: Yeah, that's uh, one of the things that, that I noted when reading your book and, and talking with friends and family about it is that it's really kind of a stealth psychology book in a way. Uh, it's, it's really written in a perspective that um, you really have to examine yourself as John Muir, you know, one of the foremost um, naturalists in, in history described, you know, his voyage into nature as more going, you know, going out as he went out, he went in and the way that he found himself is really by looking and uh, by, by going out into the wild. I'll get that quote I'm totally mangled, but, <clears throat> uh, but we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but the point is that um, that the book has, has a real uh, wonderful quality about it. This is, uh, again, we're talking with Sarah so- Skulls about her book. They are already here, uh, Why People See Saucers. And this is uh, really highlighted in a way that uh, surprised me. One, you know, I'm, of course, familiar with standard sort of uh, perceptions of lay people, and even scientists that are kind of anti-government and even anti-authoritarian. Uh, but what, what surprised me is that the general public thinks of us, you know, we astronomers, as a sort of the man or, you know, this, this culture of authority. And you describe you know, kind of these these government installations that are really astronomical facilities. And I wonder if you could take the listeners through that uh, that, that journey to the various you know major telescope facilities. You yourself had worked at one in your previous uh, life and career, and then uh, that in some part, small part, led to, of course, making contact and writing um, writing the authoritative biography of Jill Tartar, my friend Jill Tartar. Um, so, can you say something about why why it is, and if it surprised you that people kind of perceive even astronomers as part of uh, perhaps a you know a cabal of uh, maliciousness?
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a certain subset of, of people who do, whether it's like the far end of things of, you know, flat Earth believers thinking that astronomers are manipulating data to show uh, a circular Earth and faking the orbits of things from space or people who think that there's somebody at NASA manipulating images of uh, from, you know, the Mars rovers to remove the aliens so that we don't see them. And that is a theory that exists. And um, what I have found um partly from yeah, like you mentioned, I used to work at Green Bank Observatory, which is a radio telescope in in West Virginia, and i my job there was uh, interacting with the public a lot and I was surprised to learn when I worked there that lots of people um you know probably one on every other tour thought that we had some secret evidence of aliens that we just weren't telling them about. And A, I was like, they definitely wouldn't tell me because I would tell everyone. Um, and B, like in general, astronomers aren't hiding things, um, because the culture of science is to, you know, produce, produce open data and do things in public and make things transparent. Um, but I think what I found from, um, from working in Green Bank and visiting various other spots, including one that appears behind you right now, it's a very large array, um, is that, um, you know, to a lot of people, astronomy is a really uh, opaque profession to use an astronomical word. Like <laughs> people might read stories about, uh, you know, cosmic discoveries, but they don't um really understand exactly how it happens or what it is these telescopes are doing, especially ones like radio telescopes where they don't produce traditional um, you know, visual images, uh, visible light images that you can see. Um, and so that's that's one thing. So when something is opaque, people just kind of put their own interpretation on it sometimes. And then there's also the element that a lot of scientific facilities have started their lives as Uh, military facilities or with some kind of military funding in their past and now with the internet it's not hard for people to find that out and then kind of springboard that into the present and say well they're still doing secret government work and and things like that and just to see all of these invisible hands in the background kind of moving the pieces and um yeah I don't, I don't. I don't think of astronomers as the men, but um, I can definitely understand why some people might. Yeah,
2: well, you know, another aspect that that comes through um, a little bit more in making contact than than in uh, they are already here is kind of this adversarial nature of science. In that, you know, there's nothing more that I would like to do than to, you know, make make a discovery but there's you know second to that in many scientists minds is, is almost disproving someone else's discovery because that's the real nature of scientific confirmation is that it must be confirmed it must be replicated in an independent uh, reproducible fashion um, you know we, we always refer to this you know as peer review etc cetera. And despite you know, some of my colleagues have a poster in their offices, says, "I have no peers." But but you know, for most of us, we we certainly have peers and superiors. But the question of you know, if somebody were to see something, you know, there'd be nothing you know more more you know kind of uh, uh, significant in an astronomer's career than to actually make a discovery. And I wonder, does the UFO culture even recognize that 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 having you know peer review, or the equivalent of a peer review, or some kind of crowdsourcing of the of data or of observations could benefit the credulity that people have in greater society.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely certain elements of the people who are interested in UFOs who would welcome that kind of thing. And there have been different attempts to try to do that. Like there's an organization called um, MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, that has kind of tried to Standardize investigation and, you know, produce reports. They're not peer reviewed, but they're they're trying to have some kind of reproducible procedure. Um, But a hard thing about that, and like we were talking about earlier, is that lots of the data that exists right now that people are trying to dig into is first person accounts, which we all know are um, not very reliable, no matter who you are. Um, Like if I had an account, you shouldn't trust it, um, probably. And um, I think, you know, there there are people, people do advocate for attempts to get to get hard data and do peer review. And in, uh, but the UFO culture in general is not as open as scientists are. Like there's there's one guy named Robert Bigelow who has funded a number of UFO studies um, that were supposed to collect this hard data with, you know, sensors and cameras and spreadsheets and and uh, you know <laughs> software and scientific type things. Um and that data for whatever reason, I'm not sure, um, it never became public and never got published in a peer-reviewed journal. And so I think um in a lot of cases that's probably related to the I want to believe phenomenon is that people are finding data that doesn't align with their hypothesis and when that happens You don't want to publish it which happens to scientists sometimes too um who don't publish their null results or or things like that but um i think it's more prevalent in the ufo community
2: yeah so um what speaking of of bigelow i want to kind of address that particular elephant in the room and kind of wonder you know what is it about uh rich mostly men that are seem to be so drawn to this or prominent men versus women, or did you, is it, is it true? I mean, are there, would you say, what would you say the gender, you know, kind of breakdown is?
0: Yeah, I would say it skews heavily uh, male, mm-hmm. the general demographic. Yeah. I think. mean,
2: making contact, of course, you know, one of the lead, you know, uh, characters in a sense is Paul Allen of, of Microsoft fame, the late Paul Allen passed away uh, about a year or so ago. And, and Paul funded, you know, this massive project that was really the culmination of Jill Tartar's Career uh, at the SETI Institute, and, and that you describe the, the trials and tribulations of that wonderful facility, but you know, kind of yet to live up to to the promise that it, it could have had. But I wonder, what is it about these you know billionaires that make them so intrigued about about investigation of you know potentially fringe or you know at least outside the scientific mainstream? In, in some cases, for UFOs. Uh, in particular, maybe less so for SETI, I think we'll get to, you know, the status of SETI in a little bit, but um, what do you think appeals to them about this, uh, about, um, you know, using their wealth to look for things like UFOs? And I'm talking about him and um, uh, the Blink-182 uh, co-leader, uh, Tom, is uh, it Tom DeLong or
0: Yeah, Tom Delon.
2: Yeah, um, and his Ad Astra uh, um, uh, project. Can you, maybe speculate on what makes people uh, devote so many so much of their resources to this pursuit.
0: Sure. Yeah, I can absolutely uh with the caveat that it's speculating and pop psychologizing. Um I think in my mind, what motivates people is this, uh, similar to what you were just talking about with scientists where there's nothing more appealing than making a really big discovery. And that is a big motivating factor in why people are um, doing science or researching UFOs in the first place, because as fringes we think of this topic as, and it is fringe. If someone, you know, did find the flying saucer and verify that it came from outer space, that would be a very large, uh, that would be huge. And I think that um, people with a lot of money who have the resources to pursue something huge and can also just risk losing all of that money um, are are willing to do it for the, it's a, a, low probability high consequence event i guess and when you get to a certain place with your money and then also with your reputation like people still respected paul allen after he funded a search for broadcasts from extraterrestrials um i'm not sure how much how much respect people have for uh, tom de or but you know robert bigelow is a businessman who um uh, well, actually, his his company recently shut down for a while due, due to the pandemic, but he had a, a module attached to the space station. Like he's a big NASA contractor taken seriously um, and yet ran like a paranormal research institute. And I think once you get to a certain threshold, you can kind of do what you want. And people will um, say like, that's a quirky guy, but they'll still take you seriously.
2: Yeah, I think that is interesting. You know, also, again, pure speculation, psychological armchair analysis is worth what you pay for it. But, you know, this legacy of, of wanting, you know, some, somebody said recently, you know, once, once people about Jeff Bezos and, um, you know, once they get to be a certain level of wealth, they really just want to live forever. <clears throat> and in some sense, you know, making a discovery like this would be, you know, scientifically uh, scientific immortality, if you will. Uh, so maybe that's a, a part of it as well. One um, person who I've always been very interested in is Michael Shermer, and and hopefully uh, you guys will connect together too. And uh, Michael, of course, describes an alien abduction that happened to him in his book, uh, uh, as well as this wonderful book called um, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me by Carol uh, Tavers. I don't know if you've read that book before. Yeah, it's a really good book. It's it's about all sorts of cognitive dissonance and how human beings cannot tolerate being in a state of this dissonance and how the extraordinary links that police officers go to justify to themselves that the you know that the perpetrator is guilty and and how you know attorneys will do similar things and um, even in marriage or relationships that people will have kind of blinders on while they're in the you know pre nuptial uh, you know kind of phase and then they all of a sudden their eyes are open and, and the, th- the part I haven't completed, I'm almost uh, three quarters of the way done but but basically I believe that there's a virtue in teaching these kinds of dissonance and, and biases and the guarding against them um, at a young age as well as possible. And I think you know Michael's adventure when he was abducted by aliens or he believed that he was uh, uh, really led him into a new career which is quite the opposite 180 degree opposite to, towards the realm of uh debunking uh, and being a, a skeptic uh which he'll hopefully as i said have you on his show and you know we, we've discussed this he and i together and just this adversarial nature that scientists have and you know whether or not it's it's a good thing i think you know all fields all fields need sort of a beginning phase where they uh sort of get get their start and uh and to take it seriously i think Things like SETI have been, have been going on now for 60 years. Actually, I think this is the 60th year of uh, the original uh, papers that were uh, produced in the Project Osma. And you talk a little bit about that in this book. Did you find, you know, kind of old friends and recurring themes coming from making contact in the making of They Are Already Here?
0: Yeah, there's not so much overlap exactly with the people researching SETI and the people researching UFOs, but of course the people who are doing SETI get a lot of emails and random phone calls from people who are interested in UFOs and want um, a respected astronomer to be able to explain that to them. But um, one one overlap I did find was one that... Uh, articulated by a radio astronomer named astronomer named Garrett Berscher, who once um, once was involved in SETI in its in its earlier years, and then came to see the motivation behind it as almost religious. Like even if a SETI astronomer says, um, you know, I go into this without a hypothesis, I am trying to find out whether there is. Uh, the intelligent life elsewhere, and I'm just trying to figure that out. He pointed out that it it, it has to be motivated by the hope that it's out there, um, and also um, a lot of the justification for doing SETI is about um, you know things like if we find a civilization, they've existed for a long time, therefore they must be peaceful because they haven't you know atom bombed each other to death, or they figured out how to solve their own global warming, and so it kind of has this salvation thing going on, and I think both of those, um, uh, which SETI astronomers would probably argue with, um, do have some amount of overlap with, with UFO um, believers who kind of look to the skies for, for something more powerful, um, and they wouldn't call it a god, but it kind of plays that that role um, for them, and I think that's, he called it the Salvation School of Study. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I
2: want to get into that towards the end in a few minutes when we talk a little bit about the you know, kind of personal um, uh, motivation and, and, and perhaps revelations that you've had uh, in the writing of this book. But Before we get there, uh, we had an event earlier this year at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, uh, which we called uh, Is ET Already Lurking in Our Own Cosmic Backyard?, with uh, scientists and uh, and authors, both of them, uh, uh, Jim Benford and uh, Paul Davies, and Paul Davies wrote a book in 2010, so exactly 10 years ago, uh, called "The Eerie Silence." And in that case, uh, he makes the in that book he makes a very convincing case that um, that the likelihood that the extraterrestrials could have really overcome some of these. Great giant hurdles to their existence to become not only as Jill Tarter often points out, it's not enough that you create life. You know, slime mold on, on Enceladus uh, is very fascinating and, and important, uh, but it has no technological capabilities. Um, on the other hand, he pointed out, you know, perhaps it could be that there could already be here, uh, pre pre you know, emptying your title, uh, that aliens could be here, but in the form of sort of a shadow biosphere. And I wonder, did you consider, you know, not just the saucer appearance, I mean, uh, of, of, of certainly UFOs, that's by nature, but but of aliens among us, uh, but not in the kind of prosthetic forehead type uh, variety that we typically see depicted?
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, I didn't include it um, in the research, but I have looked into the shadow biosphere. Um idea that life, uh, either arose twice here or, uh, you know, came here, um, from somewhere else and still exists. And I think that's, I think that's an intriguing possibility. And I think there's, there's some very smart people who have written about, um, ways to look for life as you don't already know it. And that seems to be the problem with fighting the, like a a shadow biosphere here on earth is. How do you how do you look for something when you don't know what it is, and how do you differentiate it from this life and from not life? And it's it's an intriguing it's an intriguing topic. And um, but in in the research for, they are already here. The form I most encountered it uh, as was more like the there are reptilians in Congress kind of um, form, uh, which is different from a shadow biosphere
2: uh so i'd like to conclude uh this uh, wonderful discussion by asking questions that are uh, tangentially related to the topic we were just discussing at least at first and, and that has to do with <clears throat> with reading and books and how you know in my mind uh second only to dna which you know perhaps eh, some alien microbe might have in a slightly different form than than we experience here on earth uh, but you know wh- what do books mean to you this is your second book which is a uh, heroic Accomplishment uh, by uh, by anyone's standards, uh, but I, I wonder, you know, what do books mean to you? And in, in the case of, you know, the future legacy that a book can provide, uh, I always like to ask my author guests if you would rather prefer that you have a uh, hundred readers one year from now, or one reader a hundred years from now.
0: Hmm, that is a hard question. Um, let's see i think I think I would prefer at least for this most recent work, a hundred Readers now because i feel like um not just not just for sales purposes but i feel like this i undertook this book based on something that happened just a few years ago and it's kind of reflecting on um, where we are now as a society and how ufo belief rises and falls with what with what's happening culturally and i feel like maybe especially while we're all isolated in our own houses in a in a kind of Moment of fear and uncertainty, which is something I talk a lot about in the book, that maybe this would have some resonance beyond just UFO people. Um, but I think uh, for the book about Jill Charter, I might prefer one reader a hundred years from now, because when I was when I was working on that book, um, I thought a lot about what what if study succeeds someday and. Um, we find something and someone wants to look back on what the endeavor was like in its early years and the people who started it. And like, I can create something now that someone in the future could have as a, as a present record while all of the players are, you know, alive and still, still doing things, um, of, of what it meant to us now. Um, uh, but to me books, um, you know, I read a ton starting very early. I was obsessed with books. Um, I would go on car trips with my family and my mom would always be telling me to look out the window at the nice things that the world that they were showing me. Cause I, I always had my nose buried in a book. Um, but I think then and now, um, you know, is a way, uh, to, to go places that you can't go. Um, which is pretty cool right now. And, um, also a way to get, uh, different perspectives on things you know there's some studies about fiction reading and empathy and how people who read fiction especially have more empathy because you're just forced to think about the minds of other of other characters and um yeah so that's that is, I think, what I look to them for. Oh,
2: great. And speaking of those readers, now my next of the f- second of the five questions that I like to ask authors is: of those readers, those hundred thousand readers that you're uh, hopefully going to get thanks to this podcast, and and uh, you know how how we're going to advertise them on the surface of the moon. Uh, for those hundred readers, thousand readers, uh, however many you get of those who, which sort of would you prefer as your target audience people that are skeptical about this uh, phenomenon or people that are you know sort of already down and they they sort of already are predisposed to the notion that ufo's exist
0: hmm. i think i think i would prefer the people who are predisposed to thinking ufo's exist because i think it's always useful to be able to uh, see from the outside something that you're a part of and see how somebody else views it and because I think UFOs you know whatever they are to people no matter what they think of them the seeing of them is a human phenomenon and when you're part of a part of like a uh, culture it's hard It's hard to see its, its flaws and its good parts and I don't know I think it's useful to help you from the outside mm-hmm.
2: uh and so maybe you know continuing on that on that theme um one question i like to ask especially for people that are astronomically inclined uh is a is a quote that i uh read and included in my book uh by soren Kierkegaard, uh who said that life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards i think it's this kind of a uh, you know a, a Typifies astronomy. We're always looking back into space and and seeing things as they were in the past. So I'm wondering if you could look back uh, into your past. And and the book is is very uh, is remarkable to me because it's also very personal. It talks about you as a person and now that you you know established your your credit your credentials uh, throughout your many uh, articles and and book and your previous book. Now I think you know you're giving the, the public your audience some more insight into who you are. So I'm curious as to you know, what do you think you would look back and tell your 20-year-old self uh, uh, that it might seem impossible at the time, but uh, but looking forward, uh, it will work out. And, and and that kind of goes along with the theme of this podcast. Into the Impossible is Sir Arthur C. Clarke's second law, uh, first being any sufficiently advanced society is indistinguishable from magic. And the second one is the only way to find out what is possible is to go a little bit and out of your comfort zone into the impossible. So if you could tell 20-year-old Sarah uh, Skulls a, a little bit of advice, what would that be?
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I think related to the, the, the parts of my past that are in the book when I was, when I was 20 years old, I was recently, um, out of, uh, I had, I had grown up a very devout religious person. My family was Mormon and I had recently left. And at that point I was, um, you know, skeptical and kind of I don't know, I can't think of a word other than demeaning of, of other people's beliefs just because I found any kind of belief so like anathema to this uh, newly very, very skeptical, very atheist point at which I found myself. And and kind of a book like this where I'm examining other people's beliefs, it, it forces you to, you know, give them respect and try to understand them and not just be like, well, um, I was Mormon and I'm not, so I know you. And so I think, I think I would tell myself like, just um, you know, you don't you don't know everything, and maybe take a little more time to understand other people, which is probably something most twenty year olds could hear more often, but me
2: especially, I think. That's right, yeah, you describe your uh, encounters at Area 51 last summer as, you know, kind of being the elder stateswoman in the group, and uh, it's kind <laughs> of uh, delightful to hear the journey that you go on and, and the candor that you exhibit in the book. Uh, I, I always like that uh, people are, are honest about their own um, and, and really portray, you know, you're not a scientist, as you said, but you write a lot about scientific topics, and you um, and I think, you know, to, to show that we are, you know, we non, uh, non, non-scientists, show non-scientists that we are human, right? And I think it's a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful service that you uh, continue to provide. The last question is about um, curiosity and imagination here at the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination. I'm always uh, you know, um, uh, curious what my guests have to say about their particular skill set, and maybe it's a set of skills. You're a public speaker, you do journalism, you do uh, scientific research into your subjects, at least, you know, kind of the the large, large scale game. But what you do, can it be taught? Can you actually communicate, teach? Is it partially, uh, you know, born into who you are and your life experiences? And so maybe it won't be able to be taught. What are your thoughts about the uh, transmutability of your of your values and of your of your skill set.
0: Hmm. I mean, I think it is probably true that people are born and then ingrained through nurture with different levels of um, curiosity and engagement with the world and with the people in it. Which I I I know that. Um, I mean, as a journalist, people people think of you as mostly being a writer, but mostly my job is actually talking to people, not writing about them. That's the, and, and doing research. And I think that you can teach that in the same way that you can teach yourself to be aware of your own cognitive biases. I think you can teach yourself to be curious about people and curious about their stories and curious about how that's all interacting with the world around you. And I think, um, I mean, especially even looking for stories when I first started doing journalism. I think I saw it, you know, that how how will I ever find enough stories? And then as as soon as you start to think of, you know, everything you encounter as an open question that you can go investigate, then that's the way you start to see the whole world. And so um, I think if you just take a step and uh, take a step back and notice what your mind kind of maybe wonders about for one second, and then instead of one about it for one second just like dwell on it a little a little more and talk to people about it and I think I think that's transmutable that's
2: great. No, wonderful thank you so much all right the last question is really the part of the plug zone not the twilight zone but the plug zone um so where can people connect to you online uh, social media etc
0: Sure. Uh, on Twitter, I am Skolls Sarah, Um, And I have a website where I put up all of my articles, which is www.sarraskolls.com. And you can find information about the book there, too.
2: Great. And uh, anything you want to say about future project, whether it's writing or a book or journal articles?
0: Hmm. That's a good question. And actually, uh, let's see. It, uh, it's mostly an, an open question right now what comes next i have all those books that i mentioned behind me about um millenn- millennialist doomsday cults so that's uh, that's all tbg that people can keep an eye out for whatever Something to look of forward that.
2: to doomsday writing Yeah,
0: absolutely
2: the inimitable yeah. sarah skulls well sarah thank you so much it's been a real treat i wish you the greatest success with the book and i hope that you'll keep in touch
0: yes definitely and thanks for having me
1: any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We hope that this episode was as thought-provoking for you as it was for us. For a chance to win your very own extraterrestrial object in the form of a meteorite fragment, subscribe to Brian Keating's mailing list at briankeating.com slash list. Thanks for listening, and remember... Always be curious.